0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: All right, welcome uh, to this uh, second session of uh, the conference that is being sponsored by the International Initiative. Uh, My name is uh, Dick Scott. I'm a co-chair along with Ray Levitt of the uh, faculty group that helped to uh, coordinate and plan this conference. I uh, want to particularly acknowledge the, uh, the co-directors of the uh, initiative itself, Chip Blacker and Elizabeth Pate-Cornell, who are sort of the deep pockets and the sponsors behind this. <coughs> but let me also say that the people who do, who've done the real work on uh, this conference are uh, Catherine Christian <coughs> and Nancy Esterbrook, uh, who have done a, a lot of the the, the serious work, uh, Uh, preparation and organization and mobilization and sort of trying to get the faculty to to, uh, get their act together. So thank you for your forbearance and for your leadership. Uh, One of the uh, 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 the things we wanted to emphasize was that this is really a kind of a, a homegrown affair. We wanted to sort of utilize and exploit the resources of our own faculty across the various schools and departments. And so there are not international experts here except the ones that are locally, uh, that would have been locally fostered. And a part of the, uh, the the, the point of the initiative itself is to try to recognize the competence that's here and uh, leverage it in various kinds of ways that we have not uh, done up to this point. And so that's, and if you see there's a, uh, uh, there's a leaf that on your uh, on your chairs that gives you all kinds of ways in which you can uh, take advantage of some of the initiative and some of the seed resources and so on that, that are connected with this initiative. Uh, this particular session is devoted to uh, the relationship between culture and te- technological development. And it's, you know, I think the mainstream theories in this area really emphasize the ways in which differing uh, cultural and institutional environments really both uh, enable and frustrate various kinds, to, various kinds of ways to, uh, to foster and stimulate economic development. And to this, and, and so there's a lot of interest in the very, how the variation in cultures affect variations in technological possibilities and trajectories. Uh, in addition to recognizing, I think, uh, that, that that's the larger theme, It's important, I think, that we recognize to begin with, there there is the widely held but untested assumption that technical development itself (coughs) and per se is always good under all conditions. That's almost taken as a given almost, and I think even that ought to be on the table, to say under what conditions and with what kinds of safeguards and so on do we really want to move at all. And secondly, the aware that, that, and I think the first panel really brought this to light, the ways in which uh, cultural factors affect not only the adoption and diffusion of technologies, but but in, indeed their invention, their their the, the ways in which they are created, and the uh, the ways in which they diffuse. And so, culture is not just sort of at the end stages; it's throughout the whole process. And so, we're talking about a very complex inter interlarding of cultural and technological factors. And to explore some of those. Uh, Uh, many issues, we've assembled, I think, a a quite varied and able panel to discuss these issues. I'll introduce the moderator, and, and he will then introduce the panel members. Moderator is Jeremy Weinstein. He's assistant professor of political science, and he's living out the international initiative himself by having working connections with the Center for Democracy and Development and the Rule of Law, the Center for International Security and Cooperation, the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And his own current work focuses on the way in which non-state actors uh, uh, enter into and affect internal conflicts associated with democratic, uh, democratic transition and economic development processes. Jeremy. Thanks,
2: Dick. I'm pleased to welcome you to the second session of the Stanford International Initiative Symposium on Technology and Culture. As Dick said, the title of this panel is Culture, Technological Change, and Development. In organizing this panel, we hope to draw attention to the work of scholars at Stanford, as Dick said, who focus on the non-technological features of societies that shape trajectories of technological development and economic change. So here we're interested not simply in a society's capital stock or its geographical location, but instead on patterns of organization the rules, norms, and beliefs that guide individual behavior, the ties that link people to one another, and so on. In particular, we want to think about the cultural foundations of behavior and how those cultural foundations of behavior contribute to processes of economic and social change. So today's panel is going to explore these issues from a diversity of perspectives, looking in particular at the source of institutions, at the influence of cultural and social factors on patterns of technological change and development and cultural and social factors as a factor shaping the diffusion of knowledge uh, and the implications of that diffusion of knowledge for patterns of economic growth. So in looking at these connections we confront some interesting issues that I think merit a sustained and serious discussion. Uh, One of course centers on the contested meaning of culture Undoubtedly it's a complex and intricate mix of elements and each scholar here approaches culture in a different way, providing us with, I think, material for a fruitful conversation. And a second, I think, considers some of the deterministic implications of some arguments that emphasize culture. To what extent do some of these non-technological features actually push societies down particular paths from which it's difficult to break free? We can come to these issues and others that you find interesting when we open it up for 30 minutes of question and answer at the end. I'm pleased to say we have a distinguished group of speakers today spanning Stanford schools and departments. In their remarks, they'll also span centuries of history from medieval trade to the enlightenment to the current era of globalization and development and approach the questions posed for today's panel from a variety of distinct and creative perspectives. I'm going to introduce them in turn, ask them each to speak for about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up for question and answers. First, we're going to hear from Avner Greif. Professor Greif is the Bowman Family Professor of Humanities and Sciences, a member of the faculty in the Department of Economics, and a senior fellow at the Freeman's Bogle Institute. He received his BA from Tel Aviv University and his PhD from Northwestern. His research interests include European economic history, the historical development of institutions, their interrelations with political, social, and cultural factors, and their impact on economic growth. Today he's going to be talking to us about his recent book, Institutions and the Path to the Modern Economy, Lessons from Medieval Trade. In it, he takes us back to the late medieval period in the Muslim world and in Europe in an effort to understand the causal factors behind the emergence of effective markets and growth-supporting polities. In attempting to understand this period, Greif draws our attention to the particular institutions that shaped economic and social behavior. He locates the origins of these institutions in a society's social structure. Professor Greif.
3: Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure being here. Uh, And And given the culture of this place in the sense that I've published my book uh, about a year ago, and ever since people were asking me, so what have you done lately? So I've decided rather than to focus on the books per se, rather talking just more generally about culture and uh, technological changes rather than drawing on the book uh, per se. But I hope uh, that you'll find it uh, interesting. In economics, it's uh, rather common to look at, uh, at the technology as commodity. It's something that can be easily transferable both and sold between, uh, between economies. But this is to say, this is, this is abstracting away from the fact that uh, technology is a reflection of a process, a process through which the technology has been invented, a process through which technology is being adapted and shaped to suit the local conditions of the particular place in which it's being uh, used and uh, implemented. And these processes, the processes that are generating new technologies and the processes that are shaping the direction of technological adaptations and adoptions are culturally determined, both in the <coughs> past as well as in the, the, the present. And at least within economics, there is, a, there is an un- strong and underappreciated uh, appreciation of the influence of culture or, uh, on uh, technology or useful knowledge more uh, general- generally. Culture has direct influence on technological changes, and culture has indirect influence on technological changes. And by indirect influence on technological changes, I mean that culture influences the institutions both markets, socials, and uh, state institutions that influence attitude toward uh, technology. So what do I mean exactly by direct influence of knowledge? There are two ways in which the culture has direct influence on technological uh, development, on knowledge development. The first is cultural directly direct influence the, the knowledge that people are motivated to explore, to acquire. And furthermore, culture influence the activities that people are taking, and hence, the technological and scientific problems that they are encountering. Second, culture influences the culture that governs technological uh, development and, 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 and adoptions. So there are two ways in which culture directly influences technological changes, by what people do and what people think about doing, and by, the shaping the cultures that governs technological, uh, 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 the, the attitude to science and technology. So let me give you examples, some, some examples. Well, it turns out to be that, that the ancient uh, Egyptians had much better anatomical knowledge than the Greek, the ancient Greeks. So as a matter of fact, as long ago as 3000, 3000 BC, BCE, the Egyptians successfully were engaged in brain surgeries since apparently they, did, they didn't invent the anesthesia yet. It wasn't much fun, but people definitely survived after those surgeries, <coughs> according to the skulls that we know that the bones healed. So we know people recovered from those, uh, those uh, surgeries. But the Greeks did not. So why was this the case? Arguably, it's for the very same reasons that the ancient Egyptians left us, left us with mummified bodies, while the Greeks left us a lot of coins. So what's the connection between the two? The Egyptians were in the business of dismantling bodies and exploring what's inside in the process of, of uh, mummification, while the Greeks, in their beliefs about the afterlives, were burning the bodies, putting on each eye a coin so that the person who has died will have the money to pay the, the way into the underworld, the next, uh, the next world. So here we have development of anatomy, and here we have basically archaeological findings with respect to... To, to coins. Similarly, Islamic. If you look at the Islamic world in the medieval, period, the medieval period, during the medieval period, the Islamic world was a leader in geography and cartography. Why was this the case? Why were the Islamic world so able to develop this particular, this particular uh, uh, knowledge? And the reason is obvious once one recognized that, uh, according to Islam, you have to pray while facing Mecca. And if you have to pray while facing Mecca, you needless to say, you need to know where Mecca is. And hence, the religious beliefs directly led to the development of particular technological technology, the technology of find locations uh, uh, over, over the globe. Late medieval Europe similarly exhibit strong influence of culture on uh, the development of uh, knowledge. Specifically, let me remind you that during the medieval period, the Europeans lost much of the knowledge acquired during or produced during the ancient uh, ancient world. But this knowledge has been returned to Europe through translations of books written in Arabic, mainly in Spain and, uh, and Sicily during the late medieval period. Basically, the medieval church, the late medieval church, has embarked in the 11th and the 13th century on a process of translating the ancient world's knowledge from Arabic back to Latin and disseminating it in the the European uh, world. Why would they do so? Why would they aspire to learn from their, at the time, at least, opponents on the European continent and learning their knowledge? And again, the reason is obvious once you understand the cultural context within which it was happening. The cultural context is the dispute between Christianity and Islam about which religion should be dominated. And needless to say, the Christians, after the crusade, understood that the only way to convert Muslims to Christianity is by arguing with them and convincing them that that they have superior knowledge. The problem, of course, with the Arab world at the time had superior knowledge to that of the, of the European world. And hence, if you had to, con- to convince them, you have, first of all, to study what they know so that you'll be able to further advance it uh, ahead. As Roger Bacon has noted in the 13th century, unbelieving philosophers, Arabs, Hebrews, and Greeks, who dwell among Christians, as in Spain, Egypt, parts of the East, abhorred the fully which they behold the arrangement of the chronology followed by the Christians in their festivals. What he meant is that since the Christians' calendar at that period of time was was short by 1 over 125 from the real lunar solar calendar, basically by the year 1000, Christians were not (laughs) celebrating the festivals, the birth of Jesus in particular, in the day in which it actually occurred. And the Muslims, the Hebrews, and the Greeks, by meaning which Greek, the the Byzantians, were basically telling them, You are telling me about God and what is right and what's wrong when you don't know even to count the days correctly, right? So you are not exactly convincing (coughs) me. So hence, it was the cultural context that influenced the the development of of technology. But but culture also influenced the culture governing technology, uh, 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 the, the technological development. And what do I have in mind here? Once upon a time, so the legend goes, there were no scientists in the world, but there were lizards, wizards. Apart from pointy hats and magic wands, the, the, the wizards also had knowledge, scientific knowledge, alchemistry, medicine, and other useful knowledge that they were developing. And what made them wizards rather than scientists is the mere fact that they were keeping the knowledge to themselves. Knowledge was... Secret. You had the book, the magic book, in which you you wrote what you wanted, the people, what you knew, and you didn't want other people to 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 know. The secrecy, however, by by and large, or let's say, the wizards, by and large, were gone by the by the Renaissance period, from the 14th to the 17th century. So, despite what Hollywood tried to convince you, particularly in Halloween, wizards are no longer there. They are gone. They are gone in the sense that during the Renaissance, there was a transition into what we'll call open science. Namely, the culture that, uh, that specify that uh, once you have developed particular knowledge, you share it with others through scientific publications and so on and so forth. And what you get in return is the reputation or the credit for this particular intellectual intellectual contribution. So why these transitions to open science, that is, still prevails today in the world, happened during this period of time? Arguably, as my colleagues Paul David and had, uh, had recently ro- written about, it transpired because of competitions, social competitions to prestige among noble patrons in, uh, in Europe. And they encouraged the culture of open science as a way for them to be able to distinguish between the intellectual merit of various various scientists whom they might have supported. So by having this open science, by having these peer reviews and publications and so on and so forth over time, it enabled the patterns to know which scientific, scientist is being evaluated more by its own community than, uh, than, uh, than others. But let's face the truth until basically the late, the, the, the 19th century, Science did not contribute much to technology, to the technological uh, development, uh, uh, per se. But, in, but prior to the 11th, but, but the, the, the industrial technology became the dominant force, industrial technology became the dominant force shaping economic outcomes during the first industrial revolution that transpires in the United Kingdom in 1750 to 1850. This industrial revolution focused or concentrated in particular on three, three areas textile, metallurgy, and steam engine. And only steam engine had some development, had some scientific components. The rest of them were basically technologically based. People knew how to do things, but they didn't understand what is the epistemological basis of, uh, of them. Yet, even the industrial revolution itself was culturally shaped and not simply reflections of economic uh, uh, forces. In particular, the cultural movement known as the Enlightenment, which I'm sure we'll hear more about it, that transpired in the 18th century, the age of Reason, had three effects on the culture of technological development in Europe. The first one is the beliefs in progress through reason. Everything can be understood, and every problem can be rationally being solved culture of, uh, of reason, of rationality. Second, the enlightenment contributed to the useful knowledge as a social virtue. So the idea is that contributing to knowledge is a social virtue. It's something that you should be proud of, something which is socially rewarded by members of the society. And this had many, many ramifications or many, many ramifications as well as many as many implications. Such as the rise of learned societies, of scientific exhibitions, and so on and so forth. Furthermore, the desire of people to show, to demonstrate their their intellectual contribution to the development of technological knowledge was so high in Britain during this period of time that when the patent office deliberated in, in, in Britain what price to put on patenting, they reached the conclusion that they have to put a very high price, or relatively high price, on registering patents. Because otherwise, all who is who will be flocking to the patent office to patent whatever they can patent, just so they will be able to say, I have a patent, and I contribute to the development of of knowledge. The third implications of uh, of, uh, the Enlightenment on the culture of technological development relate to the idea of the internationality or transnational identity of scientists. Specifically, the idea was that scholarly identity transcended that of national identity or religious identities. And hence, in particular, the rise of the republics of letter, that people scientists throughout Europe were corresponding with each other in order to develop uh, the knowledge and technology independently of of, uh, uh, their national uh, identity. So culture, basically, or what, I was, what the examples that I provided so far were about the influence of culture directly on technological development, and all the, the culture that govern technological development. What I would like to do in the few minutes that I still have left is talk a little bit about the cultural influence on technology which is indirect, namely the influence of culture on institutions, which then influence technological <coughs> technological uh, 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 development. So clearly, we pretty much agreed that, uh, that people invent when they are motivated to do so. Some invented accidentals, but definitely systematic invention is a reflection of the fact that there is a reward to inventions. And the rewards, of course, can be spiritual, can be social, can be normative. But of course, given the fact that we live in the Silicon Valley, we know very well it can also be monetary. People invent when they can capture quite a lot of of the gains from their inventions. And that's what the patent system is all all, uh, 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 about. But for monetary reward to be captured by the inventor, the inventor has to have property right over the invention. Now, who is eligible to have property right in a society is culturally determined. Let me remind you that it was only in the second half of the 19th century that married women here in the United States actually gained rights to their property. Similarly, needless to say, slaves under the, during the before the Civil War, before the abolitions, did not have property rights over their inventions. And they gained these rights only after the Civil Civil War. And once again, what we see after what we see is that following following the process through which both of those groups gained the uh, gained, uh, property rights protection, both of them have inc- substantially increased their, uh, their patent patenting. So basically the mere fact that they gained property rights induced them or motivated them to, to, to patent much more than they did before, before they did nothing because they didn't have the right to, to patent. But the point that I want to emphasize per se is that it was culture determined who is eligible to have property right, And that determines the set of individual members of the society that were motivated to contribute to technological development by, uh, uh, by, uh, uh, pro- by inventing new uh, technologies. Let me mention that for a long period of time, and including this time, in Africa at- itself, the norms, the way the Reward was distributed and property rights determined was very inhospitable to technological development. Specifically in the small communities and villages in, uh, in, uh, in traditional Africa, the c- dominant cultural w- culture was that gains, material gains as are a matter of luck. So if my 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 chickens multiply well this year or my harvest were plentiful. It's not because I worked hard on the land, but because I was lucky. The rain the f- fell right on my land, and so on and so forth. This leads to the development of the norm of sharing in one prosperity. So if my lands had a good yield this year, every members of my very extended family had uh, the right to come and to, cla- to claim share in the gains for my harvest. And it is to say, when the harvest was good, my family seems to become much bigger than it used to be uh, before. But the point is that such an environment in which one has to share by social obligation, by cultural obligations, the gains from uh, any invention, the motivation to invent is rather, is rather reduced, uh, and might be one of the factors why Africa was not technologically contributing or, or advanced for a long period of uh, time. So culture also indirectly influenced technology through its impact on institutional foundations of, uh, of uh, the markets. So we know very well from studies produced by such scholars as Ken Sokolov, that inventions are depends on the size of the market. So the larger the market for my invention, the higher, the more motivated people are to to invent. So people lives next to metropolitan area, metropolitan area in the 19th century U.S. were more likely to patent their inventions than those who did not. Simply, there was a larger market to sell it to. But the, the relevant markets to whom one sells his patents. So is the, the fruits of his patents of technological knowledge depends, of course, on the institutional foundations of the market themselves, specifically on contract enforcement uh, institutions. One does not contract with an individual whom one cannot trust will reciprocate or fulfill the terms of the contract. So contract enforcement institutions, what mechanism society develops in order to ensure that people can trust each other in market exchange determines the set of individuals that interact with each other, the size of uh, the markets. Well, contract enforcement institutions in societies, however, are determined by culture itself. What do I mean by that? If you look at the West and the development of contract enforcement institutions in it, it was heavily shaped, this development was heavily shaped by the individualistic nature of the European society, as well as by the legalistic contractual tradition of the Roman law. To make a long shorter story short, and to glance over a lot of important and uh, complicated issues, that's led to the development of contract enforcement institutions which are provided by and large by the state. Legal contract enforcement, which provide a basic to market economies in the Western world uh, since since the late uh, late medieval period. Again, it's not that reputation and personal <coughs> relationships do not matter in Western market societies. Of course, they do. But at the same time, there is also the legal contract enforcement through which one can access markets or individuals, transact with individuals, outside one's own group within which one has reputations and personal familiarities. However, many other countries in the world are more collectivist in nature. People interacted with their small social networks. And furthermore, they had different legal traditions, not all of which were based on formal legal uh, uh, contracts, rule of evidence, and so on and so forth, as it was in the the West. In those societies, markets tend to evolve around personal exchange. Contract Contract enforcement was basically provided by one's reputation within one's group. We all grew up together, we all went to school together, we all were in the same, we are members of the same family, extended family, the same ethnic network, ethnic uh, group. We all know each other, and we all trust each other. Whoever cheats one of among us, as if he cheats all of us, and being punished uh, accordingly. But does this imply? It implies that the cost of exchange within members of the groups was low, was low relative to others. What does this implies? This implies that if individuals outside of the group had inventions that enabled them to produce the same good for a lower cost, and they came to the group and says, look, to a member of the group and said, look, I can sell you this product that he's selling you for a lower price, you would not buy the product from me in the lower price because there is no contract enforcement institution between us. And hence, you will prefer to buy the more expensive goods for members of your own groups, because the contract between you can be enforced. What this implies in terms of my motivations to invent, there is not much gain for me to invest in inventing a technology that will reduce the cost of the product, because the market that I have access to is limited. And the limited size of the market is a reflection of the fact. That contract enforcement institutions are not provided to support impersonal exchange, but rather supporting a personal, a personal uh, exchange. Let me give you another, ex- uh, another ex- example. So, move on to talk about the direct, the indirect impact of culture on technological development through its uh, impact on the institutional foundations of the state. But I'm not sure how much time do I have. So, five more minutes? Three to five? Yeah. Three to five? Okay, that's good. So basically, basically uh, uh, the, in order for the, the, the institutions of the state and institutions provided by the state influence technological uh, technological uh, 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 development, which and those institutions in and of themselves are a function of cultural or being culturally determined to some, uh, to some extent. So first of all, for the state for people to be motivated to invent to. It, uh, to be technological inventive, inventives, the state's institutions themselves should be shah, such that the state does not prevent people or deter people from, invent, from inventing. I know it sounds bizarre. Why would the state do that? But it's not that the state does it intentionally. It does it unintentionally or indirectly. Specifically, the state has the power to take one's property away in many societies in the past and definitely in the present, unfortunately, there are no institutional ways to to stop the grabbing hand of the state. So, If I make an invention, the state itself can come in and expropriate the rent of my invention, either by not protecting my property right, either by creating various monopolies, taxations, and so on and so forth. And it is to say, we do have an example like that just going on in Latin, in Latin America, although in a different context. So what does culture has to do with it? We know very well, or there are many studies that uh, are that arguing, that part of the mechanisms through which society is being able to hold back the grabbing hand of the state is culturally determined. In order to prevent the state from abuse property rights of each of us, we have to be able to coordinate on responding to the state if the state does so, if the state abuses property rights. The ability to coordinate, in, terms, in turn, depends not only on the social networking within the, co- the society, but also on common understanding <coughs> what does it mean to abuse property rights, what, what action by the state constitute the violations of our, uh, of our uh, right. Similarly, state-provided institutions that can promote inventions. Technological infrastructure will be one of them. The provision of, uh, of educations, which will promote uh, technology, is uh, yet another. And the extent to which the state does so is, again, culturally determined to some extent. So we know very well from studies both abroad as well as in the United States that that ethnic diversity influences the extent to which the state provides public goods. In more ethnically heterogeneous cities in the United States, for example, the provisions of public goods is lower than the more homogeneous states. But the same will hold with respect to states in Africa or other places in the world in which there are many of various groups, ethnic groups, living in the same, in the same uh, location. So, ethnic diversity, uh, cultural features, influence the extent to which the state provides, provides uh, uh, public goods, which in turn influence the extent to which individuals are motivated to, to, to invent. So let me conclude by talking about the present and uh, the future, or one word about the present and the future. And definitely, and just to illustrate the point, that cultures did influence trajectories of technological development in a way that can shape, uh, shape uh, uh, destinies of various uh, economies. So what is the frontier now? Arguably, stem cell research is definitely one of the technological uh, uh, 14, for the frontier. So if in the past one would say, go to the West, young men, and grow with the country, now one should say, go to the neurological laboratories and grow with the cells. But uh, So who is going to the neurological laboratory these days? Definitely the Israelis going quite a lot to to those uh, labs, perhaps because the state is so small that there is not many other places to go to. But uh, still, it's interesting to know that the highest per pa- capita article publishing in scientific journals in 2006 or before 2006 related to stem cell research in Israel is the highest in the world. So the highest per capita publications in scientific journals related to stem cells is, uh, is, uh, is Israel. The US, by example, for example, or just for a comparison, is, uh, is sixth uh, six place. So why is this the case? Perhaps it's because the average temperature in Israel is higher than the United States. The cell lab is usually air-conditioned, so it's a good place to aggregate. But so is the cinema is also pretty much air-conditioned, and it's much cheaper to get an admission ticket to the cinema than doing the PhD and being working there in the lab. <laughs> but part of the reason, arguably, is culturally determined. And as a person who had one child here born here in the United States, two, but at least one of them, and one of them in, the, in Israel, I know very well that the very big difference, as a matter of fact, the main difference in those events taking place in Israel and here is the mere fact that here there is baby shower, and in Israel, there is no baby shower. And that, as a matter of fact, is the explanation for the distinctions in the cell stem, arguably. What do I mean by that? Because in Judaism, life begins at birth. You don't name your child before he was born, she was born. You don't throw a baby shower, because there is no person there to welcome yet. Life begins in birth. But in Christianity, as you are aware of, life begins in conceptions, according to some interpretations of Christianity. Right? And hence, STEM research, research is being considered very differently in Israel than it is here. Particularly given the fact that the second main trait of Judaism, cultural trait, is the statement that whoever saves one's life as if he saves the old world. Right? So the idea is that you will be able to take these stem cells and save life, literally speaking, right? Is, is a virtue that has to be commemorated as well. And hence, enhanced stem cell research—the frontier of the one of the technological frontier of the future—is focused in Israel rather than here, relatively speaking. In terms of absolute numbers, the U.S. produced many more journals articles, as you can imagine, than tiny Israel. But the point that I want to emphasize is the distinctions. Is the cultural deterministic determinism if technological development is still alive and well in the 21st uh, uh, century? Thank you.
2: Thank you, Avner. Now we'll turn to Jessica Riskin. Professor Riskin's a member of the History Department, and her research interests include enlightenment science, politics, and culture, and the history of scientific explanation. Today she's going to be talking about her new book on the idea of the animal machine, from Descartes to Darwin. and In it, she explores the evolution of technologies of artificial life. And In doing so, she tells a fascinating story about how culture shapes the emergence of technology and how those technologies then shape beliefs about what it means to be alive.
0: Thank you. Uh, actually, I have some transparencies. May I go over here? Yep. And that way I
2: can. Transparencies.
0: They're not crucial, but they're just pictures to look at. See, I'm talking about historic technologies, and I'm using a historic technology, although it's not, <laughs> not quite as old as the ones I'm talking about. Does that work? It's not, yeah, Can it's going to come it? through, but it's awfully... It's a, You're not going to see it very well. Well, they're not crucial. Dim. They're just to have something to look at. Sorry about that. Yeah. I guess the ambient light, but I don't know if there's anything about that. Uh, so this paper comes... Uh, <coughs> out of the first chapter of this book that Jeremy mentioned I'm working on, which is a history, uh, as he said, it's a history of the machine model of life, a history of the idea that life is essentially machinery um, from Descartes to Darwin. And in terms of uh, our theme of technology and culture, uh, one of my kind of central projects in the book is to trace how the meaning, the meanings of both terms, life and machinery, um, transformed through each attempt to measure them against one another. So I'm interested in transformations in the understanding of what machinery is, and transformations in the understanding of what life is, uh, sort of in conjunction with one another. My first chapter looks at the at the actual lifelike machines that existed in early modern Europe, uh, before getting to Descartes and the idea of the animal machine, the idea of life as machinery. Um, and you know, my idea was that it, I thought it might change my reading of Descartes' idea to get to it by traveling through the actual machinery that he could that he was looking at. And it did, in fact, change uh, my reading of that idea. The change had to do in part with where early modern automata were. Many of them, uh, most of them, were in churches and cathedrals. And the idea, as well as the technology of um, the animal machine, was indigenously Catholic. I've been increasingly persuading myself. The church was a primary sponsor of the literature accompanying this technology. um, And the body machine was also a recurrent motif in scholastic writing. And so, in general, the book begins with the church origins um, of the early modern animal machine, both the idea and the technology. And then I look at the other main sort of early modern automata, um, which was the mostly hydraulic ones that were uh, often on the grounds of of, uh, wealthy estates. And so, then in, so that's chapter one. And then in chapter two, arriving at Descartes' idea of animals as machines via these actual machines, um, the idea now looks culturally and theologically quite familiar. Not such a radical idea on its face, but quite a familiar one. And I think that to understand what Descartes did with that idea, um, how, he, how he made it into a radical idea, you need to take into account the initial familiarity of it. Um, so today, I don't, I'm not going to talk about Descartes, uh, but I will just sort of indicate how these machines have changed my reading of his idea um, and, and other people's idea around the same time that life was made of machinery. But first let me just talk to you about the machines. A mechanical Christ on a crucifix known as the Rood of Grace drew flocks of pilgrims to Boxley Abbey in Kent during the 15th century. This Jesus was made to move the eyes and lips by strings of hair. I'm quoting to you from a contemporary chronicler, William Lombard, who says, uh, so this this Jesus was made by means of these strings of hair to bow down and lift up itself, to shake and stir the hands and feet, to nod the head, to roll the eyes, to wag the chaps, to bend the brows, and finally, to represent to the eye both the proper motion of each member of the body and also a lively express and significant show of a well-contented or, or displeased mind biting the lip gathering a frowning forward and disdainful face when it would pretend offense and showing a most mild amiable and smiling cheer and countenance when it would seem to be well pleased. Even before approaching the rood for benediction you had to undergo a test of purity that was administered by a remote controlled mechanical saint. Um, And so here's Lombard's description of Saint. Saint Rumwald was the picture of a pretty boy saint of stone, of itself short and not seeming to be heavy. But for as much as it was wrought out of a great and weighty stone, it was hardly to be lifted by the hands of the strongest man. Nevertheless, by the help of an in- engine fixed to the back thereof, it was easily prized up with the foot of him that was the keeper, and therefore of no moment at all in the hands of such as had offered frankly, and contrariwise, by the mean of a pin running into a post, it was to such as offered faintly, so fast and unmovable that no force of hand might once stir it. So one person would go and try to lift Saint Runwald and be unable to do it, and then the next person would come along and lift it with no problem at all. And so once you had proven your clean life and innocency at the hands of the rigged Saint Runwald, you could proceed to the mechanized Jesus for benediction. Automaton Christ's muttering, blinking, grimacing, even bleeding on the cross were especially popular. Mechanical devils were also rife. Poised in sacristies, they made horrible faces, howled and stuck out their tongues. The Satan machines rolled their eyes and flailed their arms and wings. Some of them even had movable crowns and horns. Um, So this is, these are, this is the, uh, this one and the next one are by the 15th century engineer Giovanni Fontana, automaton devils. Uh, And if you can make them out at all, Um, here's a she-devil that this one has. You can see the mechanism for uh, moving the, the tail, wagging the tail back and forth, and up here for moving the wings. And then there were automaton angels. A host of these in one Florentine festival carried the soul of Saint Cecilia up to heaven. Heaven, too, was mechanized. The 15th century Florentine architect, Filippo Brunelleschi, built a mechanical paradise, according to Vasari, full of living and moving figures, as well as countless lights flashing on and off like lightning. The heavenly machinery was balanced beneath by elaborately engineered hells. One mechanical inferno's moving gates, when they gaped ajar amid thunder and lightning, spewed writhing automaton serpents and dragons. And a menagerie of, beast, of mechanical beasts pl- played parts also in religious theater. Daniels, lions, Balaam's ass, the serpent twining itself round the trunk of the tree of knowledge. The machines were commissioned from local artisans, usually clockmakers. And they were not just in big cities, but also in little towns and villages. For example, in May of 1501, an engineer in the little village of Rabaston near Toulouse was engaged to build an endless screw to propel the ascension of the Virgin. And the following August, the Virgin did indeed rise heavenward (coughs) propelled by this um, screw attended by rotating angels. Many automata were connected with church clocks, of course. That was the primary site for them. And uh, so, for example, the renowned rooster of Strasbourg Cathedral for nearly five centuries flapped its wings and crowed on the hour, and organs also. Church clocks and church organs were probably the two main sites for these machines. Um, Organs housed entire choirs of mechanical angels, three moving figures attached to the strings of the organ at Strasbourg, the same cathedral uh, as the rooster. One, the evil-looking Bretzelmann spoke with great emphasis, opening and shutting his mouth while shaking his head and gesticulating. And at Pentecost, throughout the service, the Bretzelmann would mock the priest, uh, laughing and hurling insults and coarse jokes, singing nasty songs, this automaton. Uh, figure. Other organs had disembodied heads that frowned, contorted their faces, rolled their eyes, stuck out their tongues as the music played. From the organ gallery of the cathedral in Barcelona, the head of a moor hung by its turban, making mild expressions when the music played softly and when the strains grew louder, rolling its eyes and grimacing. In a monastery in the Loire Valley, a mechanical head on the organ gallery gnashed its teeth with a noisy clatter. Here's a final example. this is a Franciscan monk built around 1560 now at the Smithsonian and it has a twin at the Deutsches Museum it doesn't want to stay on my stay (laughs) it moves by itself you see Um, it has a twin at the Deutsches Museum in Munich Um, and this monk uh, sort of I want to use it as a final example of the early modern mechanization of faith It paces, it raises a crucifix and rosary, turns its eyes and head to look at the cross, moves its mouth in prayer, strikes its breast, and lifts the cross to its lips. It has a little routine in which it does this. Um, And really, uh, it's eerie. It's a riveting, eerie kind of a performance to to witness. And I think it really embodies the power of an image, uh, especially a moving image, and even more so, a moving devotional image. Mechanization is often taken as an index of modernization. I think today, we're indeed, we are, in a sense, taking it that way. But at the same time, I want to suggest to you that automaton icons had a medieval impetus in a tradition of imagery in which the tangible, earthly representations of Christian lore were pushed ever farther. Rolling their eyes, moving their lips, gesturing and grimacing, these automata dramatized the intimate, corporeal relations between representation and divinity, icon and saint. As this relationship became increasingly fraught, the machinery began to take on new meaning, new meanings. Reformism and clockmaking developed side by side from Augsburg to Strasbourg to Geneva. And so the flood of mechanized religious images coincided both in time and in place with the heating up of the question of whether and how religious images blurred the boundary between image and deity. The Reformation cast a partial hush over the humming, groaning, chirping, whistling, chattering, ecclesiastical machinery. The uncouth Bretzelmann of Strasbourg, the one who mocked the priest, was silenced. Henry VIII banned mechanical statues from English churches. The grimacing rood of Boxley Abbey gave its last performance in 1538 after being snatched from Boxley by Geoffrey Chamber as part of his commissioned defacement of the Abbey. Chamber wrote to Thomas Cromwell that he had found um, certain engines and old wire with rotten, old rotten sticks in the back which caused the eyes of the rood to move and stir in the head thereof like unto a lively thing and also the nether lip likewise to move as though it should speak which was not a little strange to those present. So he takes it apart and he reveals this mechanism inside but here's here's what I think is sort of um, um, interesting and important point, can it really have been any surprise that the rood was made of wood and wire? I mean, it it and its many cousins had been built by local artisans, by clockmakers and carpenters, and they had been treated with great familiarity, inspiring by contemporary accounts at least as much laughter as awe. The Bretzelman of Strasbourg, obviously, and the rigged St. Rumwald were funny. People people were intimate and familiar and and often uh, amused by these machines and were also building them and maintaining them. So the fact that mechanical icons were mechanical, I think, can't have been big news to anyone. But Chamber and his fellow iconoclasts introduced the idea that by virtue of being mechanical, such icons were deceptions. The demolition of the rood and its ilk reveal that one core logic of iconoclasm, this rigorous distinction between the divine and the artifactual, brought with it a transformed view of the ontology of machines. People are beginning to um, develop a new, new set of assumptions about what machines are and what, what their relation is to life and, 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 um, and spirit and soul. Chamber removed the rood to Maidstone, where he displayed it in the public market, and instilled in the townspeople, he said, a wondrous detestation and hatred of the rood. The chronicler Charles Rothsley describes the events as follows. Also, the said rood was set in the marketplace first at Maidstone, and there showed openly to the people the craft of moving the eyes and lips, that all the people there might see the illusion that had been used in the said image by the monks of the said by the monks of the said place of many years time out of mind, whereby they had gotten great riches in deceiving the people, thinking that the said image had so moved by the power of God, which now plainly appeared to the contrary. The abuses of the engines used in the old time in the said image was declared, which image was made of paper and clutes from the legs upward. Each legs and arms were of timber, and so the people had been deluded and caused to do great idolatry by the said image. The rood was transported to London where John Hilsey, Bishop of Rochester, exhibited it during a sermon at St. Paul's cross after which it was torn apart and burned. But even as the rood met its fate, new mechanized devotional objects were appearing on the scene. The Council of Trent in its 1563 decree on the use of sacred images did not eliminate mechanical icons, but instead helped to motivate a thematic shift So for example, mechanical nativity scenes, very elaborate ones, became especially popular, um, especially at the hands of the Jesuits, who continued to use automata as a central tool in their promulgation of Christianity. So in other words, during the late 16th and 17th centuries, the machines were proliferating alongside these uh, new and growing theological and philosophical suspicions of them. The meanings of the machines were shifting. And this is the situation in which Descartes and others in his generation began to ponder the relations among life, soul, and machinery. And I'm going to come back to that point uh, in uh, in a few moments. But first, I want to talk about the main secular tradition of lifelike machines, which I mentioned earlier, which is palace waterworks. The wealthy and powerful found in automata, hydraulic automata especially, an endless source of comedy. And so just a word of warning, we are moving now from the sublime to the highly ridiculous. Frolicsome engines, uh, so en- Engines des battements. frolicsome engines is my translation of that, were, were to be found as early as the late 13th century at the Chateau of Edin in what is now Pas de Calais, um, the seat of the Comte d'Artois. And the machines are mentioned in the account books of Mathilde de Brabant, the Countess of Artois, in, uh, in 1299. The next year, the family appointed a castle master of engines. And after that, the engines make regular <coughs> appearances. They included mechanical monkeys, an elephant, and a he-goat, and other things. Um, and the countess's descendant, Philippe Le Bon, Duke of Burgundy, from 1419 until his death in 1467, left in his own account books a catalog of the mechanized tricks that he inflicted on visitors. And I'm going to read it to you. It's a longish passage, but I think it's worth uh, reading, reading it. paintings. So here's what he had in, in his castle. Painting of three personages that spout water and wet people at will. A machine for letting, wedding ladies when they step on it. An engine which, when its knobs are touched, strikes in the face those who are underneath and covers them with black or white flour or coal uh, dust, I think. Another machine by which all who pass through will be struck and beaten by sound cuffs on their head and shoulders. A wooden hermit who speaks to people who come to the room. Six personages which wet people in various ways. Eight pipes for wetting ladies from below. And three pipes by which, when people uh, stop in front of them, they are all whitened and covered with flour. A window where when people wish to open it, a personage in front of it wets people and closes the window again in spite of them. A lectern on which there is a book of ballads and when they try to read it, people are all covered with black. And as soon as they look inside, they're all wet with water. A mirror where people are sent to look at themselves when they are besmirched. And when they look into it, guess what happens? They are once more all covered with flour and all whitened a personage of wood that appears above a bench in the middle of the gallery and fools people and speaks by a trick and cries out on behalf of Monsieur (coughs) Le Duc that everyone should go out of the gallery and those who go because of that summons will be beaten by tall personages who will apply the rods aforesaid or they will have to fall into the water at the entrance to the bridge. And so those who do not want to leave will be so wetted that they will not know where to go to escape from the water." The Aydin engines, in all of their malicious glory, inspired many imitations. So much so that by the time Montaigne went traveling in 1580 and 1581, hydraulic automata had grown so commonplace that he got bored. Outside Augsburg, at the summer uh, palace of a rich banking family, Montaigne saw sprays of water from hidden little brass jets activated by springs. While the ladies are busy watching the fish play, you have only to release some spring and immediately all these jets spurt out thin, hard streams of water to the height of a man's head and fill the petticoats and thighs of the ladies with this coolness. Elsewhere, elsewhere, hidden jets could be triggered to gush directly into the face of a visitor who stopped to admire a particular fountain. And there also, that palace also had an automaton lion that would spring forward when a door was opened. And uh, Montaigne, uh, he, he, he records. Uh, more and more of these devices. Uh, uh, One place, um, the palace of Francesco de Medici, there were automaton animals and uh, a place where you would sit down and all the seats would, he says, all the seats squirt water on your buttocks. There's a lot of that, as you'll probably be beginning to gather. the Tivoli Palace and Gardens, which had been built by Cardinal Ippolito d'Este, governor of Tivoli after a, consul, uh, after a failed bid for the papacy as a kind of consolation, uh, Montaigne was bored by then. He said, the gushing of an infinity of jets of water, I had seen that elsewhere on my trip. 20 years later, Tommaso Francini, engineer to Ferdinando de' Medici, then Grand Duke of Tuscany, was enticed away by Henry IV to give him some waterworks at Saint-Germain-en-Laye. Uh, Franchini built grottos devoted to Neptune, Mercury, Orpheus, Hercules, Bacchus, Perseus, and Andromeda. This is actually not uh, Franchini's, but this is another one from around the same period, the Orpheus grotto um, at, at the Palatine Gardens in Heidelberg, built by another engineer, Salomon de Kos. So you can see Orpheus playing his cello in the, in the, in the center, and uh, automaton creatures all around him that move uh, to the music. What was it like to live amid such machines? Well, we happen to have a daily record of the life of a child who grew up with the hydraulic grottos of Saint-Germain-en-Laye in his garden, a record that includes every lisping pronouncement, every, you know, the numbers of prunes he consumed at every given meal, um, and he was the future Louis the Thirteenth, the son of Henry the Fourth and Maria de' Medici, who was born when Francini was getting to work on his father's fountains. And according to the journal of his doctor and caretaker, Jean Herroir, the Dauphin watched the workers from his windows as a small child, visited the grottos, operated the fountains himself, uh, had had many, many fantasy games, enlisted all the palace staff in these games, pretending to be Orpheus, having them uh, uh, pretend with him, doing various things. We hear him in bed one morning telling a chambermaid, pretend that I am Orpheus and you are the fountaineer. You sing the canaries. All of this, actually, I'm translating it not only into English but into grown-up. It's all written in baby talk, carefully transcribed baby talk in the journals. At home, he pretended to be Francini, building and working the fountains. He played fountains in bed, in his gilt wash basin, and under the dining table. Fss, he, the, the, the sound effects are recorded. Fss, um, and the passion contained more than a hint of childhood eroticism. Eroir dutifully recorded one day. Says he has a faucet in his ass and another in his willy. Fss, fss. As a child king following his father's assassination, Louis XIII continued to visit Francini, spending time forging, soldering, and filing fa- uh, fountain pipes as a as a pastime. You didn't need to be a king, prince, or pope. The pope's nephews and their grandnephews too, all the little cardinals and archbishops, wanted hydro amusements to call their own. Marcus Sidic- Sidicus von Honems, uh, sovereign and archbishop of Salzburg from 1612 until his death in 1619, built uh, waterworks at his Schloss helbrunn that are still in operation, and I went there two summers ago with my then four-year-old, who absolutely loved it. Everywhere he turned, the scenery would belch water on him, and stone creatures would stick out their tongues. And uh, he he just was entirely delighted, as were all the other children who were also visiting. Um, But he did ask me how how I could, on the way home, he asked me, how could I possibly be writing a book about this? Uh, (laughs) Ridiculous. Uh, So you might think the joke would wear thin, but in fact you would be wrong. The sport proceeded right on through the 17th century, and by the 1660s when John Evelyn was writing his gardening manuals, he assumed it was essential to include automata. He had elaborate instructions for building them and mentioned various ones that he had uh, seen, including a waggish invention he had found in the garden of the Pope's cross bearer, a lion's head chair that would vomit water onto the neck of the sitter. So arriving at the mid-17th century, when the idea of the animal machine began to flourish in philosophical discussion, we can see that mechanical images of living creatures were already everywhere. They were familiar not only to the nobility and the wealthy bourgeoisie, but also to their servants, to the engineers and artisans who built the machines, as well as to the audiences who flocked to witness them, and the literate who read about them. This culture of lifelike machinery projected no antithesis between machinery and either divinity or vitality. On the contrary, the automata represented spirit in every corporeal guise available and life at its very liveliest. And so in closing, just to give you an idea where this is headed, my idea is that Descartes attached his epistemological revolution to the figure of the animal (coughs) machine partly because of its familiarity, theologically and culturally, and that the familiar mechanical renditions of life also oriented his thinking about living creatures as machines. The meanings of mechanical images of living and divine subjects I was suggesting a moment ago were transforming as Descartes was writing. And the meaning of of machinery changed importantly also as a result of his writing. But he, I think, could still have an older set of meanings in mind. The key thing about Descartes' idea of animals as machines was that they were alive and sentient, his animal machines. Almost from the beginning, it's been next to impossible for people to understand them as such. That is, people have trans translated his view into the belief that that animals were inanimate. They were machines and therefore they were lifeless. But to understand living things as machines did not, to Descartes, mean to render them inanimate. He saw them as alive and as machines. And that's the sort of unstable moment of transition that I'm hoping to recover in this project, the moment in which it seemed possible to see living creatures as machines in something like the modern sense, while still seeing them as alive in something like the ancient sense. Perhaps um, the complexities of that earlier transitional moment could even help inform our thinking about the current moment in which the relations among machinery, life, and mind are, again, a matter of urgent controversy. Thank you.
2: Last, we're going to hear from Professor Roman Varziag, who teaches in Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He received his PhD in economics from Harvard. He's conducted research on the determinants of economic development across countries, how openness to trade uh, affects the economic growth and performance of nations, and a variety of other topics. Today, he's going to be talking about a recent paper that's attracted a great deal of attention already. In it, he tackles this age-old question of what explains vast differences in per capita income across countries. But he focuses on the genetic divergence of populations over time, emphasizing how cultural and genetic differences across societies act as a barrier to the diffusion of innovation. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm also going to stand up and talk from
4: here. Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to talk here. Uh, I'm going to take a much more macroeconomic approach than the, than the previous uh, speakers have adopted, uh, probably a complementary approach, um, uh, but uh, certainly a sort of a, a more uh, macroeconomic approach because that's my comparative advantage. We, uh, I've launched a project on um, the various features, particularly cultural (coughs) features that might impact the propensity of uh, countries to uh, adopt each other's technologies. And in particular, uh, we're looking in this project uh, at uh, how can we quantify the barriers that create uh, difficulties in adopting or diffusing the technologies. And uh, the (coughs) main question we ask is uh, uh, why don't the laggards in development adopt the features that rich countries uh, uh, have that allow them to be rich, and we don't really ask the question of what those features are. Avner uh, hinted earlier that one of the biggest determinants of uh, cross-country performance uh, were institutional features, and that's certainly the case, but, uh, uh, you know, there are lively debates about what is the most important thing that makes you rich, and I'm not going to get into that uh, very much, at least not in in, in in the few minutes that I have. What I'm going to talk about more generally is what are the barriers that prevent these features from diffusing, whatever, whatever the features are. So um, <clears throat> what a big part of this project is to come up with measures of distance between populations or between countries, if you like, <laughs> uh, that we then statistically try to relate to uh, differences in per capita income <clears throat> across these countries and try to see which ones, in this uh, statistical sense, tends to predict differences in income per capita the best. We look at two major. Um, two major basically categories of distances. First, geographic distances. There is uh, a, a well known book by Jared Diamond, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, that looks at geographic factors over a very long period of time, uh, you know, uh, thousands of years, uh, as determinants of the propensity to diffuse uh, mostly agricultural technologies, but w- was what he had in mind. Uh, in contrast, we're going to look at those as well and in large measure confirm a lot of um, Jared Diamond's findings but try to add to this uh, purely geographic dimension a more human dimension in the sense that not only does uh, geographic uh, distance matter uh, but as we will argue also differences in human characteristics what we have in mind are mostly differences in human characteristics that are culturally transmitted but it may not only be uh, uh, culturally transmitted characteristics the main contribution of our overall project in this particular paper is to look at um, um, basically uh, measuring differences in these human characteristics by genetic distance. And actually at Stanford, we're very well placed to do that because uh, Cavalli-Sforza's lab has uh, devoted its uh, entire existence basically to gathering these data on differences in genetic makeup. I'm going to say a little bit in a minute how do you, how do you properly interpret uh, what these measures mean. Uh, but basically. Uh, We're going to use that to measure how much time cultures have had to share a common history. Basically, the bigger the genetic distance between two populations, um, the less time they have spent together uh, in human history. In other words, the more, um, um, you know, in the past, the farther in the past did they split apart from each other and have had time to develop different norms, culture, languages, and so on and so forth that might now account for differences in, in income. So just to give you a preview, uh, uh, here is, for example, the genealogical tree of human populations at the level of 42 world populations that serve as the basis for the data we're going to use. And what you see that the exact dates are debated, but uh, they are uh, proportional and uh, very highly so, uh, very highly correlated with the um, with the genetic distance actually. Uh, about 70 to 100,000 years ago, populations left Africa to populate the rest of the world first by following uh, the coastline of, uh, of of southern Asia to to make their way into Austra- Australia, uh, and then into central uh, Central uh, Asia, Central Europe, and then into uh, the various corners of Eurasia. Some of them making it making it across the the Bering Straits into the Americas. And what you see is that these subsequent splits of human populations into subgroups uh, were associated with uh, increased um, genetic distance between them. Uh, The biggest genetic distance that you see in the world is actually between the the, uh, between the Bushmen and the Pygmies in Africa and the uh, Australians and New Guineans, uh, which are separated by the most time since they shared a common ancestor. Um, The main findings uh, of our project is that we find a a statistically significant and economically strong correlation between these measures of genetic distance and differences in income per capita. I'm going to spend a little bit of time showing you some of these results. these results are reinforced when we focus on the distance to the technological frontier, which we take to be the United States today. Um, but it doesn't really matter whether you consider the population to be English population or any other uh, European population. What this means is that a proper interpretation of this is that these differences probably act as barriers. Mostly, that is, they introduce uh, distance in human space between populations that lead to uh, difficulties in transferring um, in transferring uh, technologies. Uh, these correlations hold also for periods of history where actually income differences were not very highly correlated with today's income differences. And in particular, if you look at the period in 1500 where actually uh, it wasn't so much Western Europe that was the richest uh, area, although Italy in per capita income was at the time, according to our measures, the richest country in Europe. Uh, But certainly if you you go back further in history, you will see uh, this correlation hold, even though the current leader was not the same leader. Uh, And that's significant when it comes to interpretation because it suggests strongly we view uh, my co-author and I uh, argue that these um, differences in human characteristics act not uh, necessarily in, du- in a direct way, um, you know, I guess uh, uh, a caricature of, of the view that these features would act in a direct way would be to say that something like being a Protestant is uh, good for the emergence of capitalism. That may well be true, but this is an example of a direct effect of a of a cultural feature that's transmitted from generation to generation, religion, on on, on an outcome, but rather, that these uh, differences act more as barriers. Doesn't really matter uh, what exact cultural trait you have, it's just the fact that it's different from another uh, neighboring uh, population, or not neighboring, but uh, another population that that might introduce barriers to the diffusion. So here's some some figures that show the the basic of our argument, the baseline of our argument. If you look at the genetic distance uh, between populations matched to countries, and uh, their economic distance to the US, if you like, if you just look at the per capita income in 1995 of these countries and you try to correlate that to the genetic distance to the world technological frontier, which we assume to be the US, uh, you see a strong negative correlation between the two and it's actually very highly significant statistically, uh, even though this looks like a bit of a cloud around the line, um, uh, it's actually highly significant statistically as well as economically. This is the same thing for within Europe, so in this, uh, in this graph there is no variation that comes from differences with uh, African countries that tend to be poor and also tend to be very highly genetically distant uh, from, from the technological leader. But simply looking at within European populations where uh, the split between these populations has occurred in terms of, uh, of time relatively recently, there has been con- a considerable amount of globalization within Europe uh, after uh, the splits occurred. And yet you still see this, uh, this negative correlation, even though you might think that it's certainly in terms of genetic traits, the differences are not, um, are not uh, very significant uh, between populations of Europe. And this suggests to, uh, to me, uh, at least, that uh, most of the effect comes from cultural rather than genetic features. Um, and that's something we may want to discuss in the Q&A. What I want to say is you know, I've introduced some of these concepts, and I want to make them a little more clear. Um, when you're trying to understand this correlation between genetic distance and differences in income, uh, you have four basic uh, uh, options. One is to consider that some genetic trait might impact your ability to uh, be rich, you know. Um, and there are actually scholars, we are not part of them, in fact, we are in the diametrically opposed quadrant of this graph, that argue that some traits, such as traits that lead to uh, lower fertility, for example, genetic traits, genetically transmitted traits that are naturally selected, uh, might lead to uh, features of societies that are better in a direct way. So this paper that I'm citing by Galor and Moav in 2002 states that a lot of the demographic transition that we've observed occurring in Europe first was the result of the transmission of a genetic trait that made people want to have fewer kids. This is an example of a direct effect of a genetic trade directly on uh, on income per capita, if you like, or on the propensity to adopt certain technologies. In contrast, uh, some have suggested that um, uh, there is a direct effect of culturally tr- transmitted traits, not genetically transmitted traits. And this is the example I gave from Max Weber, you know, with the spirit of Protestantism. There's also some uh, more interesting uh, recent research on the issue. Tabellini has a nice paper on culture across regions of Europe that shows that Uh, Regions of Europe uh, where people hold a strong belief in individual responsibility, and also regions of Europe where people don't value very much the uh, uh, discipline in their children tend to be uh, regions of Europe that are wealthier. I I thought the one about discipline in your children was particularly interesting. turns out I'm from France, and in France people have strong beliefs that their kids should be disciplined, and that translates into lower economic outcomes, according to (laughs) Tabellini. And I have kids, and uh, as a result, I'm trying to not have them be too disciplined.
2: Um,
4: the, the other quadrant in which we place ourselves is uh, looking at these differences in uh, human characteristics, if you like, the, what we call VTCs, but that's basically jargon, uh, comes from a barrier effect. And there you have some barrier effects of, of genetically transmitted traits. People talk a lot about ethnicity and race in particular. The fact that there is a lot of mistrust between people who uh, look different, uh, if you like, or have different... Uh, uh, genetic traits uh, that might be transmitted from parents to kids is, uh, uh, has been documented and studied uh, in, in economics and in other fields. And there's a string of papers that looks at, uh, you know, genetic traits uh, or let's say, you know, uh, genetically transmitted traits as barriers to interchange, uh, communication, and so on. Um, this is uh, we 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 were we in this paper don't really distinguish very strongly between that channel and the cultural channel, but certainly we show that it's sufficient to have a view that genetic traits don't have anything to do uh, with the barriers to the transmission of development, and that instead cultural traits such as language, norms, values, would be sufficient to rationalize the correlation that we document. But we certainly don't claim to uh, give definitive proof that uh, what we document is uh, genetically transmitted or culturally transmitted. In other words, we don't have much to say about the rows here. We have a lot more to say about whether the effect that we document is a direct effect and a barrier effect. I'm going to try to suggest that it's a barrier effect mostly. So let me just give you a sense of, um, I've put some numbers up here, so I'm going to go a little more technical perhaps than the other talks and, and, and actually show you some, some, uh, some statistics just because that's, that's the meat of the paper. Um, we use this data from our colleague, uh, now retired uh, from Stanford, Cavalli-Sforza, who's, uh, who in a book from 94, The History and Geography of Human Genes, uh, gathered data on uh, a huge variety of world populations. But we have 42 populations for which we observe uh, bilateral uh, uh, genetic distance uh, for the whole world based on about 120 genes. Uh, And basically, these are summaries of differences in the genes, uh, uh, in in those 120 genes. These genes were chosen to be neutral markers. In other other words, they've uh, tried to choose characteristics like blood type that were not naturally selected. This is important because it goes to the issue of how correlated The measures of genetic distance that we use are with this concept of time since common ancestor that is so dear to us. The idea that uh, that, uh, if genetic distance measures the amount of time since your common ancestor, it measures de facto how much time populations have spent together sharing a common history, a common heritage, common values, and so on. If genetic distance is high, they have spent little time together. If genetic distance is low, they have spent a lot of time before they split apart from each other. And as a result, we, we argue, uh, they've, they will differ less in uh, this whole range of cultural and perhaps genetic characteristics. Um, so the smallest genetic distance is between the Danes and the English in this sample. We actually have a smaller one in a European sample. We only look at Europe, as I showed you earlier, <coughs> where the distance between the Danes and the Dutch is the smallest distance. You can see that these distances uh, among European populations are absolutely tiny compared to the, uh, the distances across populations in the world. Uh, for example, the, the distance between the Pygmies and the New Guineans. Um, okay. Um, I have only five minutes, so I'm going I'm to go a little bit f- faster. Um, what you see here are just simple correlations. Uh, uh, this is not uh, uh, rocket science. It's just a simple correlation. It shows you that the genetic distance... Um, so if you look at... Uh, do I have a pointer? Yeah, I do have a pointer. If you look at the genetic distance uh, uh, today and uh, income per per capita differences, the correlation is about 14%. And uh, the correlation, um, and so that's the basic fact that we document in the paper, controlling for a lot of other factors that might account for this correlation. Uh, And if you look at the correlation between income differences today and income differences in 1500, you see that it's about zero. In other words, if you're trying to predict income differences today using income differences in 1500, you're going to do a pretty poor job at doing that. Uh, the correlation is going to be zero. There have been tremendous reversals of fortune in the, in the rankings of human populations in terms of the per capita income if you go back to 1500. This I should say is only for about 26 countries for which we have continuous data since then. But yet the correlation between um, per capita income differences and genetic distance in 1500 is even stronger than it is today. Okay, So this is, we think, a very strong indication that what's going on are barriers and not direct effects, because if it were direct effects of some trait, you might expect the same traits <coughs> that made you, make you rich today to make you rich in 1500. And yet, despite the reversals of fortune, the uh, correlation with genetic distance is still strong. Here is our baseline effect. Uh, uh, you can What this table means is you can explain about a quarter, to 30% of differences in income across the world, and I should say explain, this is not a causal statement, it's just an accounting statement, you can account for about a quarter to a third of the differences in per capita income with a typical variation uh, in in genetic distance across countries. So, you know, in terms of this mystery of why countries' incomes differ so much, genetic distance uh, at least offers uh, a partial uh, but promising uh, explanation in terms of uh, of accounting for the for the differences or describing the differences, um, these effects don't change very much when you add uh, geographic distance. And in fact, uh, I won't comment on this slide, but I'll uh, I'll comment on it uh, without really looking at the numbers. Uh, when you look at competing explanations for what causes barriers to transmission across countries, uh, for example, Jared Diamonds, which I mentioned earlier, you find strong support for some of these uh, explanations. But th- it is strong support that does not compete with our uh, explanation based on differences in human characteristics. Instead, uh, they complement this uh, approach rather than substitute for it. Um, So for example, uh, in column three here, we introduce a a measure called the Diamond Gap that is a measure that captures the difference between Eurasia and the rest of the world. Jared Diamond is very very fond of this idea that uh, Eurasia is a horizontal continent. Being horizontal, it's pretty homogeneous in terms of uh, climates. And as a result, technologies that are developed uh, in one side of the continent can diffuse particularly agricultural technologies because there's homogeneity <coughs> in climates along the horizontal axis. Eurasia also happens to be big. And Jared Diamond makes a big deal of the, f- of the size effect that, that, um, um, that uh, Avner mentioned earlier, uh, um, you know, that it's easier to innovate and so on when you're bigger. <coughs> In particular, the the, the frequency, you know, the 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 number of domesticable species and so on and so forth was greater in Eurasia. But if you contrast that with Africa or the Americas, which are vertical continents, it's much harder to to diffuse technologies across very different, uh, very different, uh, um, you know, latitudes, uh, if you like, because of uh, uh, because of barriers that are geographic barriers. And we certainly find evidence for that in addition to uh, evidence for for uh, uh, the role of these human traits. Um, the last thing we do is we try to say, I've been quite vague on what these human traits are. I've said, you know, things like language, norms, values, but I haven't been very specific about what they are. And, in fact, we're not very successful when it comes to that, scientifically, in identifying specific traits that, mi- that may matter and that might account for the effect of genetic distance. So we found specific <coughs> cultural traits that do matter, for example, linguistic distance. Various ways uh, uh, to measure linguistic distance, many of them developed by our colleague James Fearon in the uh, political science department. And um, uh, introducing them into our statistical model does not reduce the effect of genetic distance. Even though linguistic distance, turns out, does uh, help predict differences in per capita income, it does not help explain away the effect of genetic distance. But we're still on the search for better measures maybe of trust across countries, of uh, differences in values and norms uh, that might account for this overall distance. Uh, this overall effect. What we think is it's likely that the genetic distance <laughs> captures a whole range of various cultural traits uh, and perhaps non-cultural traits that introduce barriers uh, 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 and that a single one of them will not be able to capture the full range of these uh, of these cultures because really of these effects because really what we're trying to capture here is commonality in history and there is no single variable that measures commonality in history. I think the the closest we can come is uh, t- to such a measure is genetic distance. This, I should say, is uh, you know a bit of more of, a, of the optimistic effect. Jeremy mentioned earlier that this type of research uh, leads people to have a very deterministic view of, uh, uh, of history and of the process of development. I don't think that it does. Uh, first of all, there's been tremendous variation in the extent to which genetic distance has uh, helped explain income differences. You can see here, which is completely consistent with our story based on the Industrial Revolution, that the effect of genetic distance peaked around 1870. And the reason for this is that uh, very few countries had invented this vastly superior technology for becoming rich, uh, namely the Industrial Revolution, and it had not had time to diffuse to the rest of the world yet. And as it did so, as this paper documents, largely at a speed proportionate to how distant these countries were in terms of genetic distance, the effect of genetic distance itself in the age of globalization has tended to fall. There's been much more exchange, and this barrier effect has uh... fallen so i think i'll end with that and open it up to questions
2: so there are microphones moving around in the back and, and i hope we can run a little bit into the beginning of lunch but take about ten minutes for, for some questions and answers
5: professor greif would you comment on the, uh, the effect of military motivations
3: on the development of technology which uh, i did not quite grasp in your talk <coughs> and perhaps the, uh, the shift between, or the, uh, the, the transmission of knowledge between science and
1: technology, I'm thinking about artillery, parabola, very early things uh, that, uh, that uh, motivated the, the uh, development of technologies, which in fact takes me to
3: a part of uh, Professor Riskin's talk with the uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Automata. Uh, This is a very good question, and as you might know, there's quite a lot of debate in the literature with respect to whether military conflicts were good to technological developments or not. On the one hand, you have to come up with new technology. On the other hand, you are also destroying capital goods, knowledge, uh, human capital, and so on and so forth. There are periods period of times in which military conflicts did not shape technological development in any meaningful uh, meaningful way. Specifically, for example, if you look at the Crusaders. So if you compare then the, the naval technology of, uh, of the European, by the beginning of the Crusades and the end of the Crusades, they got better only in one dimensions, namely specifically the ability to transport horses over the Mediterranean, because that's what they needed to ship uh, and were not shipping uh, shipping before. At the same time, sometimes you see a tremendous technological uh, 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 development that are coming out of military military uh, conflicts that are later on being put to military military to to civilian to civilian uh, use. Atomic bomb, unfortunately, will be one example of uh, of such uh, such uh, technology. But one can provide uh, others. I'm not familiar with any. I'm not familiar with any. Research that was able to, to make sense of it all in a, in a, in a way. So I would not attempt even to do it uh, to do it uh, to do it uh, here. But definitely, what is the what is what is the allowable set of technologies to use in warfare is to some extent culturally determined. But needless to say, those who do not adopt new military technologies tend to vanish from the face of earth at some point, uh, uh, but they can still survive for quite a long period of time. Let me just mention the example of uh, the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt that uh, survived there basically from, from 1260 to 1517, when they were defeated by the Ottoman Turks and became part, or Egypt was conquered by the, 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 the Ottomans. So basically, the Mamluks uh, refused to use firearms. This is this is this is women's weapon. This is not men's weapons. Men's weapons is what you hold by hand. That's, that's, that's the way to fight. And they refused to adopt this new technology. And the end, of course, was they were run over by those with uh, with the new with the new uh, with the new technology.
0: Is
5: there a question? I'd like to uh, ask the last speaker, uh, in the genetic uh, explanation of uh, income or gross national product, uh, Koreans you can perhaps explain by interchange with Americans. Same with Taiwanese, uh, Singapore. You can say there were Chinese that had a lot of interchange with British, but. The Vietnamese didn't have any tradition of engineering or science, and yet they seem to have a rapidly moving economy. And there are a large number of people locally who have degrees from San Jose State, but were immigrants from Vietnam. You know, I don't see how you can explain that genetically.
4: Well, we don't have a genetic explanation for uh, development. I mean, this is not what this paper <coughs> is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what we measure here are how common and how close countries are along the human dimension. It's not not at all a genetic explanation, I should stress this very strongly. Um, What you have, and in fact, uh, Asia is a pretty good example uh, of this, uh, was that uh, there was, uh, you know, part of the explanation, we think, for why a lot of Southeast Asia developed perhaps earlier than South Asia, let's say, to uh, to take a comparison, uh, was that Japan, for reasons that, uh, for a variety of reasons, adopted the modes of production of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, earlier than its genetic distance to the world leader would have predicted, and there's a lot of scope, by the way, for these types of, de- of deviations in our in our in our framework because we only explain about a quarter of the total differences in income. So there are many other factors that can uh, play a role. It might be that uh, the cultural values or the norms and so on that Japan uh, had developed uh, made it. Um, uh, made it easier for them, or perhaps the specific depth of the interactions they had with the U.S. Uh, and the West uh, uh, you know, after the Meiji era, ma- era made it easier for them to adopt uh, the Industrial Revolution. I don't exactly know um, uh, whether that's the explanation or whether it's just chance, but once Japan had it, it became much easier for the countries around Japan, genetically closer to Japan than they were to the world technological <laughs> leaders, to adopt these technologies. And so, I, I, you know, when we look at this issue statistically, actually, um, the, you know, uh, it's not only the distance to the world technological frontier that really matters, but also the distance to, uh, to Japan. Now, there are many other factors that play a role. You know, war, the fact that Vietnam was uh, in war made it perhaps harder for, uh, you know, there was this prolonged period of war, but it certainly made it harder for them to, um, uh, to, to, um, to uh, you know, in comparison, let's say, to South Korea, for example, uh, uh, to develop, if you compare North and South Korea, clearly they're not genetically distant, and yet in terms of per capita income, they are very distant. So there there is scope for many other explanations, institutional, perhaps directly not related to uh, 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 to genetic distance, that might account for some of the income differences that you see in the world. In fact, lots of scope, three quarters of the of the variation. But what we what we argue here is that the proximity uh, of the human populations you know, seems statistically to play a role, uh, all these exceptions notwithstanding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just to connect um, uh, Abner's and uh, Roman's uh, comments, uh, I think it's it's really useful to recognize that, that culture does play out through in this indirect way through a variety of kinds of institutions. Uh, the the market uh, processes work very differently from state processes and state from more societal and normative processes. Those are very different mechanisms and so on. And I think there are two questions to ask if you want to think in more policy terms. First of all, which of these which of these clusters of institutional uh, uh, systems, which of these is more directly or more helpful in terms of thinking about technological change and innovation and, and, and growth and so on on the one hand. But the other question is, which of these is easier to change? And it seems like in many ways we we were were faced with the dilemma that the ones that are easiest to manipulate are the ones that have the least relevance uh, for change. And so uh, I don't know whether that's right or not, but I'd be interested in your comments on that.
4: Um, Well, Uh, It's a well-known fact, there's tremendous persistence in economic performance. Uh, You know, I showed you over a 500-year period period of time, not so much, but certainly if you were to look at per capita income rankings in 1870 and today, you know, over a 150-year period of time, you would have uh, a a pretty high correlation there. Um, So I think that if you're going to look for a good explanation for comparative economic development, it better have uh, something that is highly persistent at the core of it. you know, uh, Jeremy stated that genetic distance was, you know, very highly persistent. There's no question about that. Um, we take it as a proxy, you know, I tried to I, I tried to say this, uh, we don't quite believe that it's that persistent. First of all, its effect has fallen through time. But, um, um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I agree with the statement that uh, the things that uh, seem to have the biggest bang for the buck in terms of explaining comparative development tend to be the things that are hardest to change. Um, and those pertain more, uh, in many instances, in many instances, to culture, uh, cultural norm, cultural values, than they do to formal institutions that you can change overnight by a change in the law. Um, changing formal institutions overnight by a change in the law, like adopting democratic institutions, has led to pretty disappointing effects uh, in many instances. I think, uh, at least in the work I've done, uh, democratic transitions don't produce immediate effects. It takes 100, 150 years for them to. <laughs> Uh, to take effect when really the institutions themselves are seeped into the culture, you know, the strong interactions between the two. Yeah, I guess that's my perspective.
3: So, so it's a very close perspective to the one that I have. That's mean, uh, I think culture has underappreciated and not sufficiently well understood implications on technological uh, development and economic development uh, more generally. And because uh, the underlying processes are extremely difficult to, to alter. Role models in childhood, indoctrination, socializations, and so on and so forth. Definitely, changing the formal rules does no do not uh, matter. What what seems to perhaps what what one should so so hence institutions by and large reflect a culture and embody and embody culture. And uh, and when you try to change institution by changing only the rules rather than the values and the beliefs or the norms and the beliefs that underline them, you are basically do not achieve much if uh, if uh, if anything, perhaps confusion or or, or, or or ignoring them, and that's 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 all there is to it. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we do live in a somewhat different world than the world that existed 100 uh, 100 150 years ago, and even 20 or 15 years ago. I mean the 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 speed and the is to access information about processes, about what people do in other places in the world, is unparalleled in world history. And that can have a powerful effect on changing norms, for example, women's status in the society, human rights, and so on and so forth, to an extent that might might lead to more unification of culture than had been in the past.
5: I know we're almost out of time, but one connection between Roman's talk and and Avner's talk that struck me is um, if if indeed genetic similarity is a proxy for cultural interaction over time, and that if in some parts of the world, i.e. with some genetic groups, um, economic and and political and institutional norms evolve that, that enable people to trade with people who are different than them, whereas in other parts of the world they don't you might expect that this would result in kind of a one-way flow of technology. Uh, I don't know whether this makes any sense. In other words, if I can interact with people who are genetically, and hence culturally, very different from me with property rights and rules of law and and incentives for innovation, uh, but not necessarily the other way, uh, you know, this may explain why culture, for example, the center of culture and the center of knowledge flowed from the Islamic world to the Judeo-Christian world over the last few hundred years. Is that a reasonable inference from what, what uh, you've said?
3: It's a good point. So what, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that the degree of distinction, you learn more from those who are different than you rather than, than those who are similar to you, right? If you're open to that. If you open to that, right? So the potential of learning, right? And uh, and the generic differences and the cultural differences is what created in some sense a barrier, uh, religious wars and so on and so forth, uh, hatred to to foreigners. And, and, and I think that historically, that's definitely, definitely the case. You're, you're absolutely right. It is when those, those boundaries become blurred, just like with the example that I provided, the return of the ancient knowledge or the ancient world knowledge to, to Europe, is an advance, is a, is, a, is, is, uh, is a reflection of that. And let me give uh, some more example, if I may, and come back to your question, which, uh, which was kind of caught me by surprise with the military stuff. So if you, look, if, if you look at the long-term development of technolo- the technological development that altered the, sh- the shape of the world, or the shape of the trajectories of economic development, the railroads, the steam engines, the, the ocean navigations, and so on and so forth, right? they are all coming or they have an origin in interactions between societies that did not interact before, and I would imagine are pretty genetically distant. So what is the textile revolution in, uh, in, uh, in, in the industrial revolution, the industrial <coughs> revolution? Where does it come from? It comes from the English, those t- traditional producers of wool fabric with the Indians that happened to be producing much better quality and, and comfort uh, cotton fabric, right? And the, American, the, the English has to, to, to adjust. And on the other hand, they are here in the United States having access to cotton and so on and so forth, and they put the two two, together, the three together, their traditional textile industry and their need to sustain this industry. The cotton that comes from the United States, the the cotton itself, the technology, the knowledge of that, the the, the, the textile fabric and so on and so forth from India, and they produce basically a a major industry in, in Europe. But if you look even in the process through which the Europeans have reached to the new world, it's not simply that they wanted to get to the Far East, which is interaction with those whom they did not interact before, but also the reason they were European were able to do so is because of the naval technology that they developed. And the naval technology they developed was drawing on the Mediterranean traditional naval technology with a square, 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 rig, and low and low hole on the Baltic technology of large hole of the cog, of the Caltic cog, and perhaps most importantly, on the technological innovations in even technology that they brought from the Indian oceans and from China, from the stern rudder to the triangles sail. Uh, and I would Latin sail, what's called in Europe. I would not get into the, the why do you have those three components to, to, to make the thing work, but that's what was required. And so before before they had these technologies, access to technologies development in places of the world that they've never interacted before, they wouldn't have been able to cross the Atlantic.
1: So this, that... I'm sorry, this is clearly a topic that could go on for another two hours very productively. I'm sorry to cut it off, but I, we're, we're in danger of, of uh, missing out on lunch, which began far 10 minutes ago. And I think we want to stay pretty much on schedule, so... Uh, uh, Catherine, uh, will you tell us what uh, what the plan is for lunch? What do we do?
2: Just if quickly, if you can, we you can join me in thanking the three panelists uh, for an excellent presentation. Right.
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U, and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.